see we're on a mission from God. podcast. I am your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today I have a special guest, a gentleman that I met many years ago when we were both involved in the, uh, well, we're both still involved with the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute. Uh, This is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Umar Hakim Day. Assalamu alaikum, my friend. Q. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I am always delighted to be able to share space with you and hear from oh, you. So. Man. I, man, I'm digging the hair, kid. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, you got to keep yourself relevant. We're getting we're getting yeah. older. We got to keep ourselves relevant. Wait a minute. There you go with that. Who's getting older? You know, <laughs> I don't speak two things I don't do. I don't speak French. So we and I'm not old. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. You you actually are, you have not changed a day since I met you. I mean, you look oh, exactly the same. Just for those who are listening, old is a car. Old <laughs> are clothes. Old are trends. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not old. Okay. I like the way you see it. Irrelevant. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so before we really get into the nitty gritty of our conversation. I always start my podcast with some icebreaker questions. Right. Are you are you down for that? Are you ready? Can I ask you an icebreaker question too after you finish. Sure. I'm hell yeah. Okay. Question number one: What was the last thing you watched on television? The Book of Cora on Netflix. Ooh, it's what is it? The, it's about the female Airbender. Interesting. Is it a is it anime? A drama animated series, yes. Yes. Is it amazing? Do you recommend it? I recommend it. It's a good watch. It's a, it's a good watch for the children, for teens and adults. It's very spiritual and it and it tells a uh it tells both stories of Cora to the airbender that we know to the first airbender. Wow. All right. I didn't know you were all in all into that. I didn't oh, come on, man. I'm I'm all into DC Marvel. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, uh, that sounds really cool. Uh, it actually sounds like something my kids would love. So the, it's, and, four, it's four seasons. It's four seasons. They will dig it. So both of my kids, they, they may have already seen it. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I'll ask them about. I'll ask them about it, and they'll roll their eyes at me like I'm a fool for not knowing about it already. Um, we already watched that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Second question: What is the last book that you read? And you can't say the Quran. Well, that doesn't count. Because, because you're all, because that's not, you're always reading that, right? That never ends. Um, Honestly, Napoleon Hill, How to Think and Grow Rich. Interesting. Did you like it? I love it. Really? It's very relevant. uh I read that book, oh gosh, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I'm slow. I just got hit to it maybe about two years ago. Oh, it's an old book, right? Yeah, it's a very old book. And then I also got the, uh. Uh, the Dale Carnegie book on um, oh, what's their name? Um, How to win friends? Is that it? And influence people? I think that's it. It's, mm-hmm. it's in my it's in it's in the living room now. I think um, that's one of like that was his 
big book. He's written, I think he wrote other books, but I think that was like the big one. I like a lot of leadership books. And then, um, so those are two old books. And then the most relevant book I read is, uh, it's right here <laughs> by Simon Sinek. Oh yeah. The Infinite Game. I have not read it. I've read other books by him and I actually really like his books. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I like I like books like that. Keep me sharp. Good. Yeah, I notice uh, for those, I know this is all audio, but I'm on a Zoom call with, with Umar and behind mm -hmm. him, he's sitting here, behind him are these big paper chart papers on the wall, like with all this really complicated looking stuff. Like you look like you're about to take over the world. I don't know what you're doing um, back there, but you've got some plans. <laughs> Oh, you know, well, our, our good friend, uh, Nadia, she introduced us to design thinking. And I've uh -huh. been a, I've, I've been writing on walls ever since. Yeah, you know, you are doing some major strategic thinking back there. And it's that's, pretty that's, cool. This, most of my work, it starts on a wall or in a notebook somewhere. So this right here behind me is my is my product. In, in design thinking, you have five steps. And the, uh, the, uh, the fourth step is to design a prototype of your vision of your of your design right mm -hmm. so this is what i picture encouraged to be nice a design institute yeah i did a couple of workshops with nadia i mean mm -hmm. i think you may have done more with her around the design thinking thing and it was that part was actually really challenging for me because mm -hmm. I tend to be a, an abstract thinker and mm -hmm. that requires that you do something very concrete with your ideas. And I just remember being really, um, and, and to do it really quickly. Like she asks you to model things very quickly. And I'm the kind of person that will procrastinate and kind of put mm -hmm. off my ideas and just sort of think about them for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then they never get done. <laughs> well, the good thing about design thinking is, is, it's best to do it within a team, mm -hmm. so you can have more than one person uh, have more than one contributor to it, and then I help push the ideas forward. And then, no idea is the right idea until it's tested by the people. Yeah. All right. Okay. We're gonna talk more about this, but let me ask you the final icebreaker question. Mm -hmm. You're doing amazing, by the way. These icebreakers, you're killing it. Um, what What did you have for breakfast today? Um, I haven't had breakfast yet, but if you want to count four tangerine oranges. <laughs> that counts. Okay, four tangerines. No, six tangerines so far. Wow. Yeah. Six. Six. Two. You're getting your vitamin C, Omar. Come on, man. We in the Rona era. <laughs> <laughs> we in the Rona era. We have to get my vitamin C in. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, that's that's actually not a bad breakfast. I mean, it it does count. It doesn't. You don't have to sit down and have a full breakfast. Or I do have a whole fish waiting on me though. What kind of fish? Uh, you know the big whole perch fishes. I like. I cooked some last night for the family, and everybody had their whole fish. But you know the cooker, the cook gets an extra one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I have an extra fish waiting on me. Very nice. Okay. So, so now that'll be your lunch. If you say so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you, did you want to ask me an icebreaker question? Oh, my icebreaker for you is Marvel or DC? Oh, Marvel. I and know. Who's your, favorite, and who's your favorite superhero in Marvel? Hulk. Absolutely Hulk. 100% okay. Hulk. I'm and Hulk. what's Hulk's superpower? Real superpower. My superpower? Well, what's the Hulk real superpower? 
the Hulk superpower is controlled destruction. Like mm-hmm. he he can he can destroy everything, but he has figured out a way to not. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. What, what's his real superpower? Compassion. He's very oh. compassionate <laughs> about smashing evil. Yeah, well, that's true. That's that's like that's a very nuanced view. I'm still stuck on that. I want to break. Mistake him for being angry. Yeah, but he's angry for the fact that evil exists in his realm, in his in his surroundings. So he Mm. has to smash it. So he's very compassionate about that. But your answer was was you know he does has the power to smash. Yes, I kind of feel like I relate to Hulk a little bit. Yes, a little bit. Of course, you always smashing. <laughs> I, I used to, you know what? About a month ago, a month ago, I had your uh, diagram for this uh, digital civic leadership up here. Oh, I was I was using that as a um as a motivation to keep focused. Nice, awesome, yeah. I uh, going back to where we started. You, when I the the very first time I met you. You came in and you talked to us because you had already been through Amigley and mm-hmm. I was in this cohort and you came in and you talked to us about community organizing. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I just remember being so impressed with you because mm-hmm. you Thank had you. your shit together. And I didn't. I, I At that time, I was totally confused about what I wanted mm-hmm. to do in the world. And you just seemed to know what you were doing. And I was like, that guy has got it has got it down but what's interesting is over these years i've watched you evolve Mm -hmm. you know and and continue to grow and i think that's what i really appreciate about you as a leader and as a as a friend is that you are you have this this insatiable desire to learn new skills and and then put them into practice like actually Mm -hmm. do something with them yeah i am i'm fortunate to have had a good mother and I'm, I'm fortunate to be put around great leaders, you know, for my community. I'm fortunate to have had a, a good experience growing up in the city of Compton. Mm-hmm. And then later on in life, been really fortunate enough to be around good people who inspiring people like yourself and Nadia Bree and Naeem and Imam and, and the list goes on. I've been fortunate enough to be around these people. When you're around this caliber of people, you either you either dump or get off the pot. <laughs> you know what yep. I'm saying? Yeah. There's no sitting, there's no sitting reading magazines on the pot. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta dump or get off. You know what I'm saying? So there's no sitting around because I, I've learned, you know, my brand is encouraged and leader to me is a verb. Yeah. It's not a noun, it's a verb. It's one who takes action where there's no action. So I like to stay focused and to stay active and coming from where I come from, you know, you have to be about what you do. That's right. And people can tell immediately, I think, if you aren't, if you're just, if it's, so here's the thing is because I talk to people about brands all the time mm-hmm. and a lot of brands are very empty. They're just mm-hmm. smoke and mirrors and mm-hmm. that doesn't work. I mean, that's what I'm constantly teaching people is that, yeah, all the branding stuff, all the marketing stuff, that's just the icing on the cake. But if you don't have any cake, you're people are going to see through it immediately and you're going to you're just going to flop. But you have this really incredibly deep rooted experience in where you're from and what, you know, what your vision of the world looks like. And so that's why I think you do so well. It there's nothing that can shake that or take that away from you. So talk to us about what encourage is. They can- it's the pronunciation 
of the word encourage. So long story short, I I was given an opportunity to go to Cambridge in the UK, but they said you needed a a project. So I I had other ideas before that, but I said, I need to think of something different. So I asked my colleagues to give me some feedback about my performance, about my leadership, about me being a colleague to them. And the word encourage kept popping up. So I've always heard the word, I know what it kind of meant, but I never really looked it up in the dictionary because it's one of those terms that you always hear, you know what it means. So when I looked it up in the dictionary or I Googled it, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When I Googled it, I saw the pronunciation key. I'm like, that's hot. Nice. That's hot. So I called my attorney. I was like, yo, yes. Can we um can we see about um trademarking this? She said, we could try. So then a year or two later, it got, I presented in the UK, went over well. A year or two later, the trademark got approved. So I started off as a hashtag. Then I started off with shirts and thank you for taking the picture in the shirt. You know what I'm saying? It started off, it started off with the, um, as a shirt. So then I formed my experiences. I, I've combined them all said, how can I, because the nonprofit world kind of sucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what I mean by that, it does its justice, but it gets to a glass ceiling. Yeah, I know. You're right. It does suck. It, it, it gets to a glass ceiling and you want to go higher. So I said, let me take all my experiences, my skills, my talent and put it into one. Because in my master's program, I wrote a paper called um, The Blueprint to Civic Engagement. And in this program, and in this paper, I learned that three sectors are coming together. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so today, if you look at, if, you, if you're really at the table and you're really at the game, in the game of civic engagement or community organizing whatsoever, you're going to see the business community. You're going to see the, the academic community as well as community partners, social services yeah. at the table. So that let me know that there's a new wave that's coming on. So I took all my experiences and formed it into Encourage. So Encourage, it helps purpose-driven organizations and leaders scale their capacity with audience insights and programming for relevant next steps. All right. And so, so this is more, it's consulting is what you're doing. Yeah, I'm an entrepreneur with a social mission yeah. because that, that ceiling of the, of, of the nonprofit world, I mean, think about it, Q. You got like a million nonprofits out here and only 10 donors. Mm-hmm. Everybody fighting over the same grant. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm, tired. I'm tired. God put us on, on, on the earth to hustle. So I'm going to do my thing. Yeah. So, and that's nothing strange to me because that's how I got through my undergrad. But what I'm saying is the nonprofit game is so saturated with other organizations. You have to create your own line of income. So mm-hmm. it's like what Tupac said, peep the rap game and see what's missing. And you sow it. This is what's relevant for me. Yeah. You know, I had the same conversation with another woman who left K through 12 education mm-hmm. to start an organization, a nonprofit organization called Being Black at School. She really focuses on kids who are underrepresented. And mm-hmm. and she has told me this same thing. That was her frustration is there the fix is in, right, in nonprofits. Like all of that money is almost always spoken for already. You think you're yeah. going to start up a nonprofit and get grants and all this, but all that money is allotted. It's very competitive and it's very really concerned. hard to actually impact change because, because it's kind of like, um, you know, the way that people are doing things is already kind of cemented in. And that's a whole different kind of power struggle than you might be used to, mm. but it's still a power struggle. Mm, yeah. It's, 
it's a power struggle and it's it's just an oversaturation. I mean, like the more knowledge you get, the more you can practice. Mm -hmm. So I was learning, see new things and continue to uh, and put it into a vision. Same thing we learned in Amicably, you know, is um, like, look at your river of life. And when you get to the end of your river, where you want to be. So if you ever read Roots to Radicals, there is a part when it says your world as is compared to your world as it should be. Yeah. And encourages my world as this should be. That's great. I actually did read that book last mm. year for the first time. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I was actually pretty surprised. I, I, cause you know, you hear about it. You've everybody who's done any kind of community work has heard about it, but it's a pretty powerful book. And it mm -hmm. talks a lot about knowing. I think that's the thing that I took from it is that you have to know yourself before you go up against anybody or try to make any change. Because if you don't know yourself and your strengths and your weaknesses, you're playing somebody else's game by their rules. Basically. Yep. And that's what happened to a lot of, I've seen a lot over my years, I've seen the game change people mm -hmm. and chew them up and spit them out. And then they wonder what happened. You know what I'm saying? So I've seen the game choose people so you definitely have to know yourself stay grounded um whether you are a faith-based person or not to stay grounded in your authenticity you know stay grounded with that and just keep pushing forward for what you feel is right i don't know if you're you're at liberty to talk about it but are there some projects that you've worked on or some communities that you've worked with where you feel like you're actually making a difference or, oh, or that you've I had an impact yeah i okay. could talk about that q that's not a secret i Good. think okay Long, another long story short. You can make it long. We got all the time in the world. Okay, so look, we're, we're we, not I, but we are known for an event called Humanitarian Day in Southern California. Humanitarian Day is a uh, it's a social service project during the month of Ramadan when we organize the Muslim and interfaith community to give uh, to bring relief to uh, unhoused people in downtown Los Angeles. Right, so that's what we do. But the backdrop of that. In the midst of this organizing, you develop certain partners, yep. certain people you, you gravitate to. So I gravitated to a group called the Skid Row Brigade, mm. the greatest volunteers in downtown Los Angeles, right? They were formless homeless people. Now they're activists on Skid Row and they have their own programs to help homeless people get through their, their struggle, right? So last year, December, they contacted me I was like, hey, we want to scale what we're doing. We want to do, we want to do whatever. So I said, okay, this is a great opportunity for our courage. We started in September. We started meeting like every Tuesday. So September we met, October we met, November we met, then in December we met. And this time in December, I wanted to show the mayor's office what we was working on. So this time we met with a brother, by the, um, we met by one of the, um, with the homeless land sign. He came down, took, um, I, we presented, told him our idea. So then fast forward, March, pandemic, Corona, yeah. right? Yeah. The city of Los Angeles was mandated by the court to put out hygiene stations. A hygiene yeah. station is a, is a porta potty and a wash and, and, and a wash station so people can stay clean, right? Yeah. So just like the story of Joseph, the man remembered the presentation that we did, right? He said, Umar, we need to create jobs for some people to monitor and report the conditions of these stations. I, I said, I got you. So we partnered with another group called USEP and United Way, brought in the Skid Row Brigade, and we created 10 jobs for formerly homeless people. 
Nice, nice. So, so in in the midst of Corona, the um, and I did this under the advisory of Encourage, but under the banner of the Intellect, Love, and Mercy Foundation, we was able to create ten jobs, a thirty day job for low income people on Skid Row. So wow. I thought that, that was that was something that really made me like we really um set set the bar on that because everybody think you're only supposed to feed the homeless and. Everybody follow a standard model, but we create, we generated jobs. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the value of the kind of work that you do, and not just the kind of work, but the way that you do it, is that you are very responsive. Because you're not stuck in these large institutions, and because you are working in coalition and have all these different partners, you can, when opportunities arise or when there's an urgent need, pivot very quickly and take advantage of those things. And a lot of times people will look at something like 10 jobs, 10 jobs and the ETA, like hundreds of thousands of jobs were lost during COVID. So people are like 10 jobs, you know, what's a, 10 jobs means a lot to those 10 people. Are you kidding? Yeah. It's a huge thing. And so much of the last year has just been people hand wringing about all the terrible things in the world. And I, I actually talked to a good friend of mine, uh, Yasmin mm. Turk, about this a couple of mm. weeks ago, also amicably. And her whole thing is, yeah, you can't solve every problem, mm. but you can do something. So figure out what you can do, where Definitely. you are, and make it happen. Definitely. Um, my thing is, when I became the board president over at LA Voice, I said, okay, I, I'll take it, but I don't want another job. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So that's why... And when I became the executive director for um, Intellect, Love and Mercy Foundation, one of the things I wanted to keep straight in my duties is that I could stay on the ground. Yeah. Because you have so many executive directors to me, and I'm gonna push back because the job is to agitate and or inspire. They get in these, they get in these positions and get comfortable, get complacent. Yeah. You know, your executive director should be on the ground just like his organizers, if not even more. Your yep. your board chair should be should be able to call a meeting with the community and not have to rely on the on, on the executive director of the uh, of the organization. So what I'm saying is, you know, staying in tune with what's relevant and to what's going on will really help your work. You know, get out that office, get out that office and continue to delegate, but also put yourself in the mix. Right. You know what I'm saying? Help, help, help your people also. I think that's one of the things that what I do. I like staying tied to the ground. Yeah. No, I think that's, I actually think that that is a huge piece that's missing with a lot of leaders is that they do end up, because usually when you're in a quote unquote leadership position, you're at a certain stage, right? You've worked your you know, way up and you've gotten to a certain point. And then you're sort of, at that point, you're just sort of removed from what you're trying to accomplish you're, or, or the real you know, crux of the matter. You're just, you're up there making executive decisions. And um, I'm a huge believer that you need to be constantly, and again, very smart, what you said, um, not to be a control freak, right? You do delegate, but you mm -hmm. also want to be constantly in touch with what's happening at the very end of your program. Like, who are you serving? And how mm -hmm. are they responding and what are their needs? Because those things are changing all the time. And the needs that you were serving in your organization 20 years ago are not going to be the same needs that you're serving now. Yeah. So you need so to hear I, it directly. 
So like whatever your market is, whatever your field of work is, you should be at ground zero, zero of that work and the people should know you. Yeah. You know, because they're going to become familiar with the organization even more when they see its uh, its leader working with. Them. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you about yourself a little bit because, you know, obviously what you're doing, not everyone is doing it. Not everyone has the capacity or even the interest. What is it that motivates you to, I mean, this is not glamorous, right? This is hard work. It's often thankless work. And it's really, um, sometimes it's to play off your brand, discouraging. Um, And yet you have been doing it for so long. You continue to persevere. You've also taken whatever successes you've had and reinvested them into helping other people. So what is the motivation behind all of that? I'm trying to get into heaven. (laughs) I'm thinking about my afterlife. I was was an idiot before I became Muslim. (laughs) And I continue and I continue some of that um, being an idiot while being Muslim. So I'm trying to get into heaven. You know, I need some good deeds to speak for me. You know what I'm saying? But um, first thing is my faith, because once you just internalize a verse, it opens up into a whole new universe. Like, uh, like I don't know how many times have you heard the situation, um, Sewer 4913, those tribes, nations and clans, you know, all that. It's, it's been said so many times, it almost become redundant. But when you really dig into that, there's some science, some diamonds, some gems into that on how to bridge the gap between people. So my faith is one, challenges. By now, everybody know that Elm, is, Elm Foundation is a small organization, but when your budget is like only like 200,000, you feel me? But you at the table with other organizations with, Budgets like two million, five millions, in some cases, even ten million. You got to show up and show out. You know, when I when I say show out, you know, you got to prove that you're worthy of being in these circles. You know what I'm saying? So your reputation has to precede you. So my work ethic is important. I could go on and on, but you know, it's just it's just it's just a matter of having a vision, and you can't change the world. Uh-huh. You can't change the world, but you could change what you're in control of That's or what right. you have the capacity to do. So thinking of new new things to do, I sit back right on walls and be like, hmm, let's try that. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, when people come to you and you be like, yo, can we do this? I'm like, let's try it. So I just try to stay tied to staying, being authentic. So it's my faith, um, my work ethic, and just taking accountability, the responsibility that you was given. Yeah. I don't know if you think of yourself this way, but I look at you as an extraordinarily creative person. Like, I don't know if you use that word for yourself. Yeah, I know. Like most people think creative is like, oh, I'm an artist or a musician. But I see you as somebody who is constantly generating ideas and testing them and refining them and iterating on them. And it's a really interesting thing to watch. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, I, I take that humbly. I'm just, this is where I, I perform my hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, I don't, uh, you know, depending on how comfortable you are sharing it about how you came to Islam, like what was it that introduced you to it and how you chose to embrace it? That's another long story. Okay. okay. I'm ready. Uh, my foster mom, she had a boyfriend by the name of, well, she had a husband by the name of Lacey. 
And in the city of Compton, you know, the Nation of Islam used to sell these papers. Back then it was called the Muhammad Speaks, which mm -hmm. today is called the Final Call. So Lacey would always read these papers. And for what I, when I became Muslim, my foster mom told me, it's no surprise that I became Muslim because Lacey used to read these papers to me exclusively. Oh. So, so this was one of the ways that, that Allah was planted in my conscience. How old were you at that time? I probably had to be like four. Oh, wow. Five, okay. Three, something like that. I don't know. I was very, very young. And then, and then all the women in my family are very religious, you know what I'm saying? In the Christian sense, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Very religious. So I had that upbringing. And then my homeboy, Duran, rest in peace. He used to tell me about uh, the Nation of Islam then. So that hit me to the Quran, but I never could get a hold of a Quran until until nine years into my cable career, I was a cable technician. Hmm. And every New Year's Eve, I would get I would get a chance to get New Year's Eve off. But December 31st, 1997, I couldn't get this day off. I couldn't get it off, right? I went to all the managers. I'm like, yo, I need to get, because I was cool with all the managers. I'm like, yo, I even went to um, the female dispatcher, you know, because she was really cute. I said, can you persuade such and such <laughs> to give me the day off? You know, so she couldn't get it. So I grabbed my <laughs> route. So I, I was thinking, thinking strategically then. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was, uh, so I grabbed my route. I had a first call on 51st Street and a Muslim sister answered the door. Oh. Sister Rebecca. And, you know, one of the safety protocols was you don't take off your boots. You keep on your boots. She said, so she said, brother, you got to take off these boots before you come to my house. I said, I'm not taking off my boots. I'm not getting my boots. So she went and got me some shopping bags. So I went in the house. Her house was immaculately clean and she had cats running all over the house. And so after I fixed the problem, because I was just that good as a cable man. Of course you were. <laughs> I was just that good. So after I fixed the problem, I looked up on the wall. I don't know if you ever seen the family tree from Adam, Alehi, Sanam, down to Idris and Noah, and then, then Abraham, then it splits from Abraham to Isaac yeah. to uh, Ishmael. Have you seen that? Uh-huh. So she had that on her wall, right? Wow. And I was like, what's that? Who are they? She looked at me and said, that's your family, brother. You know what I'm saying? That's your family. She said, that's who you are as a black man. Wow. So I was like, oh, okay. She asked me my religion. I said, I'm Episcopal. She said, okay. So that's so at the time I was going through be, becoming a new father. But my oldest was, was a young boy then. Um, I had certain vices that I needed to overcome. Mm -hmm. So I asked her, what kind of book should I read? She looked at me. She went in the back room. And she came out majestically and said, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and handed me my first Quran. Oh my God, I have chills. This is an amazing story. She handed me my first Quran. And I read that book every day for the next six months. You wow. feel me? I, yeah. was in my, I had that book in my cable truck reading me. So I went through that whole transition. So then she was like, uh, I kept in contact with her too because she was like my first Islamic teacher as, mm -hmm. as well. So I, I had questions. So she she would help me bust the myths and dispel the questions for me in, of my faith tradition and help me and hit me to a bigger picture of things. And then um, she said, are you ready? I'm like, ready for what? To become Muslim. I like, sign me up. Wow. So she scheduled for me to take my Shahada on uh, July 3rd. 
1998, six months after I, I received the crime. Wow. Is she still around? In your yes, life? she she lives in the Midwest now, and we, we keep in contact all the time. That is incredible. What yeah. a story. So did your family, did the people around you, did they think you'd lost it, or were they all on board with it? Well, two things. Growing up in Compton, you know, Muslims is no... It's, it's no foreign figure, you feel right. me? Because, right. um, um, the Nation of Islam was really relevant in our community, as well as Al-Islam was really relevant in our community. My mom grew up with Muslims from South in South America, and my neighborhood, you know, growing up, going to the neighborhood I grew up in, when they see a positive change, they all for it, yeah. you feel me? So my first positive change was getting a job, you know what I'm saying? And then got that job, and I found the Islam, then they noticed a different... I'm not trying to hang out no more as much. I'm not trying to drink, smoke that that um, that much no more. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, they was all for. So I didn't. It wasn't a. It was more of a struggle for me, a jihad for me, and jihad means a struggle to bring about good. You know, it was more of a struggle to bring about my good from within myself. That was the hardest part because I had to cut out a lot of things. <laughs> I, I know about that. <laughs> I had to cut out uh, pepperoni and sausage pizza with extra sauce. Oh, <laughs> oh man. I, got, I even got a story about my first halal pizza, but I had to cut, <laughs> I, I, but it wasn't hard. It, it, it was a transition that I still remember. And I feel, and then as I started growing, my community came in even more around me. So, a couple of my people on my block accepted Islam, not because of me, because of the creator. And now my, my neighborhood is is, is like, um, I got one homeboy to go through the neighborhood lecturing or preaching or spreading the good word, giving glad tidings of the dean. So come to find out that a lot of my dudes are, are monotheistic. I'm not going to say that they Muslim, but they are very monotheistic. And that's nice. the core of being a Muslim is being monotheistic, the yeah. belief in one God. Wow, it's amazing how even without trying, you are able to like one person who has a profound shift and and everything around them just sort of shifts and uh, and in this case for the I mean that could be for negative, but it can also really be for the positive. So that is an amazing story. I had I'm glad I asked this because I have never heard this story from you. It's on YouTube. Oh, is um, it? <laughs> it's on YouTube. I told you the short version. I'll link New, to it. I'll link to it so people can see yeah, it. Uh, New Ground Spotlight. It's on New Ground Spotlight. But you know, uh, for me, as a Black man, as an African-American, and as an African-American Muslim in this country, I'm trying to break the bonds of colonialism in my mm-hmm. blood. You mm-hmm. feel me? I'm trying to shake that that whole behavior. I'm not trying to assimilate into the culture. So when your people see that and they feel it, it, it it's just like when the Muslims went into China their adapt and their behavior inspired other people. So I hope and I pray that's what people get off of me. You mm-hmm. feel me? Yep. So because um, other than that, you know, my experience, the trauma that's in my blood is different from the trauma that's in other people's blood. And, you know, I have a different experience in this country than that. Well, we have a different experience in this country. I'm just trying to stay true to God and represent being the son of Adam. That's yeah, it. that is an incredibly powerful point that you're making. And I also think that having come, you know, up in the last 20 years through the Muslim community mm-hmm. uh, and seeing, you know, I because when I, I converted mm-hmm. as a white person, I converted into a certain area of Islam, which was mostly predominantly South Asian people. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so then the more exposure I got to Muslims, 
because mm-hmm. the American Muslim population is incredibly diverse. Um, mm-hmm. And learning the African American Muslim experience in this country, mm-hmm. I, I just I feel like not enough people understand how unique and beautiful that is. And I feel like even within the Muslim community, it's not given a proper place because it is the it is the American Islam, right? Like the African American Muslim experience is is American Islam. That's that's what it is. Uh, and it was here before America even was here, right? Like Africans yeah. came as Muslims and lived in this country. Um, yeah. They were brought here also as slaves and, and forced to convert and still retain some of that some of that tradition. And so uh, I do think I w- what I would like to see not just as a Muslim, but as a as an American and as somebody who's really interested in history and cares about social and racial justice, is mm-hmm. I'd love to see the Black Muslim experience elevated and expanded and given more space mm-hmm. in Muslim community and outside Muslim community. Well, you know, that that kind of that's a good segue into one of my latest um projects. Um you heard of Muslim Public Affairs Council Impact, right? Oh yeah. Okay, so they um, awarded me a contract to focus on their community engagement and programming there. Wow. And then, so the president, Otto, he asked me, can I organize a council? They was like, okay, can you help us do this? So I was able to organize an African-American Muslim Insight Council to help impact Muslim Public Affairs Council understand the African-American community better than what they already know. Amazing. So this is not to change the Muslim world, but just to expand this one section of the Muslim world so they could better understand their base and their and, and community partners. So the first program was a program called Let's Be Honest. Let's Be Honest is a tenacious dog log. Shout out to Adina Likovic, because I believe this was her brainchild. And because she was, that was the first program that I would, that she put me on. So when I got to impact, I was like, what's, what's up with this program? You know what I'm saying? Can we, can we use this program? And it was like, yeah, cause it's, it's an impact project. So we had a conversation called let's be honest with the council and Salam Mariotti moderated. And it was just a tenacious conversation about what's going on in the Muslim community post election. But it's really, it was really a good conversation a good conversation. So we plan to do more. And so that's what I was saying about 4913, that the science is in that. I think the last the last line in that is lead to our food, those who get to know one another. And our communities, you know, as being converts, you know, I'm gonna say that I'm, I'm, I'm joining you, as being converts or I like to say reverts. Sometimes you come into this situation and it's a big ass veracity test. Uh-huh. People test your veracity on how much you want to love Allah, how much you know about Allah, because they feel, because certain certain people, not everybody, certain individuals feel like, how did you get Islam? I've, I've been asked that question. Not how did you come into Islam? It's a difference. Yeah. How did you come into Islam? I have a person say, how did you get Islam? I'm like, what type of question is that? Wow. You feel, you feel me? Yeah. So um, not, all, not all the Muslims question why you became Muslim or how did you get Islam? You know what I'm saying? But there are a certain few that wonder, are you worthy of this? Yeah. This faith? No, I, I think that's right. Like there are there are hierarchies within 
the, yeah. the community. And one of the things, so here in Austin, I had uh, for a long time, like I said, started out and was with South Asian, you know, sort of community. And, and I discovered at some, at one point that there is a Black Muslim community. They were not Nation of Islam. They had come from the W.D. Muhammad mm-hmm. uh, line. A lot and, of people I was trying under, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so they were, um, you know, I mean, they're legit Muslims. They just, you know, they had come out of this very particular community. And so they, you know, invited everyone to join, but obviously Mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't feel like that was authentic enough. I don't know, but I had gone there for a long time and uh, still, you know, connected to those folks and found that they were, I actually found as a white, as a white convert Mm -hmm. that I was more comfortable in that community than in the mm. Asian community because the black Muslim community was so culturally relevant to me and even my kids like they were you know junior high and they were going there and they felt like the imam there had was speaking directly to things mm. that they were concerned about you know so um yeah I mean it, it was a really great experience and but but the point of the story is that the imam actually told me that he had gone to one of the mosques to uh to talk about i don't know some shared event or something and they had given him a quran and said you recite like they wanted to test him to see if he could do it like if he was an actual i know, I know, I know that exact feeling yeah and he i felt i was like oh and he obviously he can recite like but even if he couldn't that doesn't mean he's not a muslim or in a leadership position but it was just it was it was it's that kind of like um you know litmus testing and so that does exist and and kudos to impact for taking it head on and being willing yeah. to admit it and have conversation around it yeah, so we just getting started. Um, we just getting started on that project, and it's gonna be much more work out of that because there are already partnerships. It's it's a lot of African Americans in, in the immigrant community who are already friends, mm-hmm. but it's that's only a small circle. Yeah, a small circle. So now it's really time to address the problems. Like if you got a qualified African American male black man or African American Muslim, and you got a single daughter, you know what I'm saying? Why they can't marry? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, that question came up in our conversation, mm-hmm. you know, saying that a lot of immigrant families don't allow their children to marry African-Americans. Yeah. So it's, those, it's these type of questions and dialogue that we want to address mm-hmm. and just to either agitate and or inspire the conversation to start. Or nice. End. Nice. Omar, you have got your work cut out for you, but you take it on with such confidence and courage and and also, uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen you really, I guess the word, I, what is the word I'm like, like you do it with, you do it with a, a sense of joy and, and honor. It's not, it's not that you feel burdened. It's not that you feel resentful and angry. You always have this positive, and, and I'm aware that, you know, I don't want to, there's this thing of toxic positivity. I'm not trying to put that out there and say, you know everyone has to be in a positive frame of mind all the time but also when you're in that position of leadership and when you are you know doing battle sometimes with some really big things it's mm-hmm. easy to get negative and and miserable and you you do it with such grace and i really appreciate that about you first thank you i appreciate that comment um but you know us today who are muslim we come through a long line of people, of Muslims who came before us, 
in order to practice this thing here. We are the answer to a lot of the prayers of our people. Mm -hmm. and, and once we understand that we are the answer that, that the people have prayed for us to come about, to be at this position, um, take that, live in that honor and try to deliver the best way you can. You know, it may not be an organizer or you may not be the one who lead the march or you, you may not be the one who, um, you know, do these big things. But like Pac said, you may be the one who sparked the mind to do it. Right. To me, being Muslim, it's so cool to be Muslim. Hashtag. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so cool yeah. to be Muslim. Everybody yeah. wants to be like us. It's all about identity. Well, you wear it well. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. May Allah accept our efforts. Uh, is there anything you would like to say before we wrap up this conversation Not to all of my millions of listeners? Millions of listeners, if you're <laughs> listening to this, after you listen to it, whatever you learn out of this, get up and go implement it into the community. Make a difference for yourself and hopefully others will see that change within you and assimilate that and or duplicate it because duplication is the best form of flattery. And do those deeds that it's going to take to get into paradise. Break this colonialism culture that's embedded within us. Don't assimilate into the game. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks. All right, Omar, I am really grateful for your time. And I can't wait I'm to share this with everyone else. Keep that Inshallah. hair curly, kid. Inshallah. <laughs> Thank All you. Right. All right. Take care. Like on. Like on. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. <laughs> <laughs>